Oh, good morning. It's good to see you. Uh, especially happy for those of you who are coming with family and uh, here. Some, some of you, at least for the first time that I've noticed you, <laughs> or was here when you were here, but it's so nice to have you. Uh, I, I was especially excited to, uh, to see uh, the Reagan entourage of, uh, of, of uh, roommates. <laughs> Welcome. Nice to see you guys. So, uh, anyway, good, good to be together. If you will open your Bibles to chapter 4 of Romans and, and have yourself ready for uh, a text that will be a prelude to what we have looked at and read for us this morning. Uh, Romans chapter 4, and uh, be ready for verse, verse 16 there. One of the things that we have been discussing from last week is how easily it I- easy it is to say, well, by grace we're saved. And how do you know you're saved? Well, because Jesus died for us. And as I mentioned last week, that is, at least I think in the hearts of most of us, insufficient. And it was insufficient for Jesus, for God, to just simply say, you need to count on me. Uh, I'm, I'm a sure thing on this. I sent Jesus. He died for you. Uh, you're going to be saved. Uh, if that were all it would be to it, uh, Paul wouldn't have written so much in the book of Romans, giving detailed explanations of why we should have confidence in that. I realize that that's a great summation, and certainly from that summation, we should have, some, we should have confidence. But it has struck me, then going through Romans again in my own study, how many times Paul spends some time trying to detail that out so that we have no question or doubt in our minds as to why his death was sufficient and that his death was what we really needed uh, for us to have the confidence that we need in our salvation. Uh, Paul lays out in Romans a lack of confidence by saying, that there is nobody that's going to be justified by law because by the law comes the knowledge of sin. And unfortunately, we have lived too much like that. We have lived based on, am I good enough? Have I done enough? And then, of course, the answer comes back in our head, no, you haven't. You better try a little harder. There's nothing wrong with trying harder. We should all try harder. But there's a different motivation than trying harder in order to somehow convince God that he ought, to save, he ought to save us. So when we say, well, we're saved by grace, maybe the next question that comes up, what do I have to do to get it? And what do I have to do to lose it? And those questions, I think, are interesting in this particular, uh, particular chapter. Let's begin with a little prelude here, starting in chapter 4. And verse 16, I want you to read this with me, if you will. And we're going to only be in Romans. If you have this text in front of you, it's going to be a lot easier to follow some of the points that Paul makes. In Romans 4, 16, Paul says, that is why, he's speaking of uh, our salvation. He says, that is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may uh, rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring." 
not only to the inherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, as it has been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words his faith is the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now, you may have noticed in the text the number of times that, first and foremost, he makes, a, he makes a connection between Abraham and us. If you notice the emphasis on the offspring, he's emphasizing to, uh, to Abraham, you're going to have offspring, and this offspring is going to be counted righteous just like you're counted righteous. There's a comparison here between the two. Sometimes we read the text and we simply think of, oh, you know, Abraham's faith and Abraham had a really good faith here. He knew that he couldn't have children. He knew his wife couldn't have children. And, and so in spite of that, when God made a promise, he blessed him and, and Abraham had this trust and faith. But all the words that are used concerning Abraham's faith and trust in God, concerning bringing life from the dead, are intended to tell us about why we should have the same confidence that he has given us to bring us from being dead to being alive. Notice the words that are used. First off in verse 16. Notice the words. The promise may rest and be on, rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. So Danny just mentioned this emphasis on the offspring that Jesus produced that was promised from Abraham. So all, this is guaranteed, and he's emphasizing this word. Notice also down in verse 18. In hope... He believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. Please put yourself in Abraham's position here. Sarah's barren. She's always been barren. And now they're old. There's no chance. This isn't reasonable. There isn't anything about it that's reasonable. Do you ever think of your sins... And then you think of Jesus forgiving you or God forgiving you of your sins. Do you ever think about that? Is That's a little unreasonable. <laughs> that's a little hopeless. That's a little crazy. Maybe somebody else's sin he forgives, not mine. I know too many of them. 
I know how devastating they were. I know how it hurt people. I know how there were some people who died without Christ, probably because of my sins. Now, he's going to forgive that? This is hoping beyond hope. And you see this in Abraham in an unreasonable situation. Then he uses the words in verse 19. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body as good as dead. He didn't weaken in faith. You see the words in verse 20. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. You see again in verse 21. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And then notice in verse 22. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Look at all the words. Hope believed against hope. Did not weaken in faith. No unbelief made him waver. Fully convinced. And that is why, he says... That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. This faith that he had had absolute confidence in God's promise. He was not weakened in any way in this. He wasn't going to allow that to keep him from trusting what God was saying that he would do. All of those phrases are interesting because they call upon us to have the same kind of faith Abraham had. Now notice these words, his faith was counted to him as righteousness. And I'd like you to pay attention here that when he says all these things, you might notice that Paul didn't say anything about Abraham's flaws. That's kind of cool. It reminds me of the Chronicles compared to the Kings. First and Second Chronicles were written and are written to post-exilic people, people who came out of captivity and were looking for the time of Christ. When you read Kings, he is, he is reflecting Deuteronomy and the, and the promise of the curses that would come upon the people because of sin. Kings highlights highlights the sins of the people, the sins of the kings, and the hopeless condition the nation was in, and a fulfillment of the song of Moses that God gave him to preach, to teach the people of how they would fail. And when you read Chronicles, King Manasseh is saved. I hate Manasseh. <laughs> Manasseh shed more blood than anyone before him or after him. Innocent blood. He was a murderer. He murdered thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people. He spilled so much blood that God said, I don't care what happens after this. I will destroy this nation because of Manasseh. And in Chronicles, he saved him from his sins. Manasseh repented. We don't read that in Kings, because Kings is based on the law, and Chronicles is based on grace. Somehow, some way, you can read in Chronicles, and I can't find anywhere where it mentions David and Bathsheba. And what happened there? Just gone. Absolutely erased. Remember their sins no more. Chronicles is the book of heaven. 
entirely different. And that's exactly what you see when you see this picture here. Look back at chapter 4 of Romans and look at verse, verses 6 through 8 when he describes, and here is David describing, uh, the, the, right, the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. What does it mean when God says, I'm taking your faith and I'm giving it and counting it as righteousness? Very simply, he's forgiving you. He's covering your sin. He's hiding that sin from him. That, that is gone. He doesn't count a man's sins against him anymore. He counts him righteous. There's two ways you can be righteous. You already failed the first one, and so did I. You could live perfectly, and you would be righteous. You could be forgiven, and you can have a clean slate and not have any sins on you, and it's just exactly the same. Except in the first one, you'd boast, and the second one, you boast in God. Are you righteous? Do you understand what that means? If you're righteous, you don't have any sins. And you say, well, wait a minute, I, I sinned yesterday. You don't have that sin. It's not counted against you. If you're righteous, you do not have that sin. That's what that means. Can you grasp it? <laughs> A little crazy, isn't it? My two friends that I study with early on Monday morning, we went over this together. They had never seen that before in their lives. They would never read Romans and understood Romans before in their lives. And they sat back and looked at me and said, that's the most amazing thing I have ever seen in my whole life. I don't have any sins? I said, yeah. That's right. And it's all because of what he did and how he counted that righteous. He counted that righteousness. We just read it so easily. Consider fully. Those words imply a clean slate. I have mentioned it before. It's a true story. I baptized a guy one time. He came up out of the water and he wiped his brow and he says, just drown me now. I know I don't have any sin at this particular moment. I said, okay, let's go to my office so we can have a better study on what it means for the rest of your life for God to count you righteous. You need to understand that. Furthermore, in all of this, note Abraham's faith. Abraham, with all his flaws, was always loyal to God's project of bringing life to the world. That's the faith. There's a loyalty there. We never give up on the loyalty. In Hebrews, when he's warning the people and warning us over and again that although you have this promise, take heed that you do not fall short of it. 
what he's emphasizing there is do not give up your loyalty to him because of what you're going to lose. You have it. It is the promise. You cannot lose it as long as you maintain that loyalty to him. Don't do as they did in the wilderness. Don't do as they've done before. Don't allow yourself to slip. Those things. But that's what Abraham did. He was loyal to God. Flaws, sure. Mistakes, yes. Sins, certainly. We can read about it. Did you notice in Romans 4, verse 6 through 8, that was David? Did you notice where that was quoted from? In the Old Testament, that came from Psalm 51, David's confession of his sin with Bathsheba. And he specifically states in that, My lawless deeds are forgiven, my sins are covered, and God does not count a man's sins against him. He's making that emphasis. Now, let's take that from there. And now let's notice Paul's transition here in chapter 5. When we get to chapter 5, you will notice the words that he begins with when he says, Therefore, since we have, since we have been justified by faith. Paul takes a new direction here. He has been emphasizing up to this point the mechanics of faith versus works. He's been emphasizing the devastation of the sin that we had, and now how that you cannot escape that by works of law, but you can escape that by faith in Jesus Christ, in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And then he says, okay, here's the conclusion. Since we have. Now, don't read over that too quickly. Since we have. And then you'll notice the words in verse 2. And, the, and this very, very clear. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. How many words has He had to use here to try to emphasize to us what we now have, we possess We've obtained it. We have access to Him. We have access to this grace. We stand in it. We don't wobble in it. We don't crawl in it. We don't hope in it. Maybe, maybe, maybe we stand in it. And we stand in this and rejoice in this hope of the glory of God. All of these words that He uses here are words that want to emphasize to us what we have obtained. It's possession. Notice this last phrase and word that he uses there, the word hope. We hope in the glory of God. He talks about that hope down in verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame. Stop there. What does it mean, hope does not put us to shame? If you're a reader of the Psalms, you will notice David and other psalmists repeatedly beginning their psalms, pleading that God will not put them to shame. They are about to face a, de a devastating enemy. And I'm pleading to you, God, do not let me be put to shame. Let my enemies be put to shame, but please do not let me be put to shame. 
And then you get to the end of the psalm. Psalm 71 is a really good one. When you get to the end of the psalm, he's going to praise God because you did not put me to shame. You came and rescued me. You put my enemies to shame. Can Can you imagine getting there on the day of judgment after all the persecution and all the bad statements that people want to make about a Christian and about your life, can you imagine getting there and God says, as I mentioned last week, God says, eh, I don't, I don't think you were quite good enough. Sorry. You see all the enemies of Christ laughing at you. You put your hope in Him? That's where you put your hope? Ha! You're better off than me. One commonality that we have with all human beings is that we sin. One commonality that we do not have is we will not be put to shame. And that's what he's talking about when he says hope here. Hope will not put us to shame. For the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. There's a surety that he's offering us here. Now notice one other thing about this. The word rejoice is used three times in this text. The first time it's used is in verse 2 that we just read. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Notice the words. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We are going to share in the glory of God. We rejoice in that hope. Secondly, you see it again in verse 3. We also rejoice in our sufferings because our sufferings are the what prepares us for this glory. It creates an endurance in us. It creates a, a, a character in us. And it creates hope in us as we press and learn as Adam taught this morning to be strengthened by all things that Jesus has given us. And then thirdly, down in verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So you see these three times there's hope. We rejoice in the glory of God, we rejoice in sufferings, and then we rejoice in in God himself through Jesus Christ who gave us this reconciliation. Now, the last one there in verse 11 is a conclusion of verses 6 down through verse 10. That's that's what I want you to see now first first and foremost. There's three main principles of this final rejoicing here in verses 6 down through verse 10. Notice what they are. First and foremost, Jesus didn't die for good people. Why was Noah saved? Well, he was, he was a good guy. No, he wasn't. Noah was a sinner. He found grace. He found grace, he mean he was a sinner. There was only one way he could be saved, is he turned and had faith. Hebrews 11. That's the way it happened. So here is the key. Notice the words he uses. In verse 6, he uses the word when you were still weak. Weak meaning we could not escape our sin. Verse 6 also, he died for who? He died for the ungodly. What did you expect? He died for you because you were good. He didn't die for you because you were good. He died for the ungodly. 
If a person thinks he's godly, he didn't die for him. It ain't going to work. He also, down in verse 8, he refers to us as sinners. In verse 10, he refers to us as enemies. Who did he die for? He died for the weak, the ungodly, the sinners, and enemies. That's who he died for. That's why we rejoice. Secondly, in verse 9, since God has already done here what we would say is just unthinkable, dying for us while we were sinners and ungodly and his enemies, if he would do that, look at this phrase much more. Verse 10. It's used twice. Verse 9 and verse, uh, excuse me, verse nine, uh, 9 and verse 10. So verse 9, so since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So do you understand how that works? If he died for you while you were his enemy, and justified you while you were his enemy, how much more is he going to save you from his wrath? while the second part is easy compared to the first part. The second part is talking about you as a Christian. The first part was talking about you as ungodly. If He can save you when you were ungodly, if He can die for you when you were ungodly, if He showed love for you and did what He did for you while you were an enemy and a sinner, how much more is He then going to save you from His wrath after you've become a Christian? That's a big duh. He's just going, that's natural. He already did the unthinkable. How much more is he going to then do this? You know, he's talked about the wrath of God already. Chapter 118, the wrath of God is poured out on all ungodliness. Chapter 2 and verse, and verse 5, the wrath of God is being stored up against all who practice this ungodliness. The wrath of God, he talked about in chapter 2 and verse 8. Over and again, he's been talking about the wrath of God. Chapter 4, 15. The law brings wrath. So how are you living? Counting on how well you keep the law? That's what we escaped. The law brings wrath. But by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, we have life. Much more then. Now look at the second much more in verse 10. Much more, he says, verse 10, while we were, if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, see the idea, now that you're a Christian, now that you've come to Christ, now that you're reconciled, we should be saved by His life. What does that mean? Saved by His life. Saved by that resurrected life. When you look at chapter 6 and verse 4, he says we're baptized in his death and raised to walk in newness of life. We a lot of times use that to say raised to walk a better life than we did before. Well, there's certainly truth in that, and Paul's trying to emphasize that. But he's mainly saying you're walking a whole new existence. You're walking in the newness of life instead of the instead of a life in which you are dead. And you can live that way. 
Now notice this. The Hebrew writer talks about it. In Hebrews chapter 7, and he says, But he holds his priesthood permanently, because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Paul briefly mentions we're saved by his life. The Hebrew writer talks about how that's possible through the picture of of him being a high priest before the throne of God who's offered his own blood and able then to every day be an intercessor for us, saving us then to the uttermost. That's the picture he gives. Now, let's stop for a brief application. This is not just some academic exercise by which we look at this and say, okay, here's the details of this, of how God saved us and how great it was. Paul is laying some groundwork here to show us, and I think best repeated from verse 5 again, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For a while we were still weak at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Our Father, through Jesus Christ, did not do all of this so that we could live a life in which we sprinkled in a little bit of church now and then. That's pretty obvious, isn't it? He didn't do this and pour out His love into our hearts the way He did in order just to make it better for us as we sought our earthly desires and built up our possessions. That's not why he did it. He did it so that he could transform us into his beautiful bride. We need to think of it that way. Why, why does he pour out his love into our hearts? We could, we could do something academic in here and say, well, you know, we sinned, he didn't want us to be lost, so he died for us, and and thank you very much, and let me go on. And that's the way it's been taught, way too much, at least closely suggested. No, no. This is an exhibit of him pouring his love out for us. The Ephesian letter said, he cleansed us with his own blood, so that, so that, he could then transform us, present us to himself in splendor. See what it calls us to be? See what it calls us to do? He doesn't want us to have any spot or wrinkle. He's taken it all away. That we can now step down the aisle with him without blemish and be holy before him. It's a transformation process. Finally, chapter 5, 12 through 21. That's a whole sermon itself. I'm not going to do it. But I do want you to know a key point here. He suddenly gets very kind of quickly moves away from this, this argument of what he's done and then stops and he's very abrupt about it and seems to stop and say, okay, 
I want you to see something as far as the end result of what you have obtained and what Christ did. And it is hard to accept how great it is and what it is, but this is the way he outlines it. The text is quite different than before. Consider how, setting it up, chapters 1 through 3, Paul gave us the stark reality of how, how we have been crushed by our sins and that how we do not have hope, and that we cannot get ourselves out of this. And he goes through that to get that reality in the minds of Jewish readers and in the readers of the whole world. And then, in these words, he presents a comparison, contrast if you will, between Adam and Jesus. So we're going to summarize the text. A comparison contrast between Adam and Jesus. What did Adam do? Adam's one sin caused death to reign over all men. Please recognize the idea of the word reign. Reigning, sin reigning over all men. Sin is on the throne. Sin is the kingdom. Sin is the king. Sin has conquered. You are and I are the recipients of that. Death spread to all men, verse 12, because all have sinned. And death reigned. Now, that's very important in this text. That's going to go on in chapter 6 and chapter 7 and chapter 8. Death reigned. Death conquered. Death is on the throne. Death, death wins the victory. This is what he's saying. One man created that. And everybody followed him and everybody sinned and everybody is then subject to death reigning. And then he says, one man's obedience made many righteous. Verse 19. As one man's death brought many, all the world, to death, so now one man's obedience brings many to be righteous, clean, clean slate, forgiven. And then, in verse 19, he says these words, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And then concludes with verse 21. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Two reigns. The reigning of the kingdom of law, of sin, and death. The reigning of Jesus Christ, who through that gave righteousness and eternal life. Kingdoms colliding here. And it isn't like Jesus balanced out the sin. That's not what he said. In verse 20... Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Didn't just make up for it. It crushed it. It took it completely out. And now sin does not reign 
any longer. Grace reigns. The law of sin and death is gone. It's gone. It's not there anymore. It was conquered. It was crushed. It was completely taken out of the way. It doesn't exist for the Christian. We have escaped it. He has been destroyed and conquered by the kingdom of life that now reigns. It's the king of our life. Notice reigning. What reigns in your life? Who's on the throne? What is on the throne? Life. Jesus. That's what's on the throne. He conquered. Grace reigns. Grace reigns. Grace reigns. If you're not a Christian, we mentioned Romans 6 verse 4 where Paul said, as many of you have been baptized into Christ, have been baptized into his death. You were therefore buried with him in baptism into death. There's the touching of his blood. We have a good portion of the religious world who thinks they can access the blood of Christ prior to or without even being baptized into Christ. That's not the case. That's not what he said. And you raise out of those waters of baptism to, re- to reign in life and to walk a new life. If you're understanding that, and you know what you need to do. We'd love to help you this morning. Let us know in any way that you can. While together we stand and while we sing.